Hi, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Future in Finance podcast series. If you're new here, I'm Charlotte. I'm the founder of Future in Finance, and this podcast is dedicated to help helping you get through your CMAP studies without once wishing you were literally anywhere else. If you're not new here, welcome back. And I want to introduce my best mate, the money muggle, the finance dumbass. I don't know where you can see her, if you can see her, but she is somewhere around here. This is Maria. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thank you. How are you today? Really good. Thank you. You'll be thrilled to know that this week's topic is a corker. It's not. It's it's beige, so we're going to make it as less least beige as possible. Less beige. Less beige. We're covering topic 16 this week, so it's key legal cons. Con- key legal I put my teeth back in. Key, le- key legal concepts is what we're covering this week. Ooh. Yeah. So, um, what am I going to say next? What do we usually say next? What's been going on this week? Oh, yeah. So, what's been going on this week in future and finance world? Lots of things. Um, first of all, if anybody has heard of the mortgage advisor event, there's one in Manchester, there's one in Glasgow, there's one in London. If you have heard of it and you go into the Manchester one, fun news, we're going to be there too. We're going to have some free stuff. We're going to have some chats. We didn't get a stand because it was way too last minute for us to realize what we needed for a stand, but we are going to be kicking about answering all of your CMAP questions. So hopefully we will get to see some of you guys there. As of this morning, the e-learning platform is now on sale as a standalone <laughs> So I spoke to a bunch of people basically who wanted to sit a masterclass course, but either they've already spent all of their money on other fast track courses that haven't worked or they've spanked all of their holidays by actually going on holiday. How fucking dare you not spend five days of your holiday allowance studying VCMAP? So I thought I'd release the e-learning platform as a standalone product. And it's basically a lifetime access online course that gets every syllabus update from every year ever. Um, where you can go through every topic of the textbook. So what I've done is I've broken the course down into 25 chapters and each chapter reflects a chapter in the textbook. And then you've got different study options for each chapter. So you can either watch me teach it you. So it's a recording, it's a live recording that's been uploaded onto the platform of me teaching that topic. It is everything that's in the textbook is in there. If you don't want to look at my face, fair enough. What you can do is you can listen to the audio file. So it's exactly the same. It's a full breakdown of the topic in an audio file. So you can listen to it on the go. And if that's not for you either, then I have rewritten the entire textbook. And I've made it easier to understand, easier to read. It might be a little bit funny, although I am quite biased. And it is finance, so it might not be. There's also the mock exam papers in the platform. So you can sit the live exams in the system. I'm trying to think of a better way to explain that, but that's that's as easy as it sounds, right? They're the up-to-date papers. They're from this year and you can sit them whenever you want. You can also download them, print them off. It's there for life. And if you buy it and you hate it, I'll give you your money back. That's how confident I am that this product is well good, is that I'm anticipating nobody to come back and be like, actually, that was a complete fucking waste of £130. I want a refund. You can have your money back because you've got terrible taste. So it's £130 as of right now. The course is still being built. So it means I go in every day, I upload new files, I edit the text, I upload the mock exams. There's something new going on every day with it. And that's why it's at £130. When it's finished, which is going to be around about the week of the 20th of September, it's going to be up to full price, which will be £218. 
you still get the lifetime access. So if you buy it now, you've just got yourself a bargain and you keep it forever. And yeah, there's the money back guarantee. So that's dead simple. What else have we got going on? The masterclass courses are, the first course is sold out, but I think that was sold out from last week anyway. I've still got the other two courses left available to book. I haven't really had a chance to advertise those too much just because I've been building the course itself. Um, so I will come on to that at a later date. But I think that's everything from us on this end. Update. Yeah, I can't think of anything else. So I guess that brings us nicely on to doing our favourite part of the podcast, Maria, if you will. Do intro music. Topic 16, let me open my notes. So as always, we're gonna start with the objectives directly out of the textbook. Please remember, this is not a comprehensive study guide. If you want one of those, I do sell them for a tenner. This is not it, we cram as much as we possibly can into about half an hour. Sometimes it's less, because we're both really busy. So by the end of this topic, we should have an understanding of the meaning of the term legal person, Features of limited companies, partnerships, and limited liability partnerships, the requirements for a binding contract, aspects of agency law relevant to financial advisors, key concepts relating to property, powers of attorney and substituted decision-making, and wills and the distribution of estates. A really good place to start with this topic is to think about if you have any personal experience with dealing with stuff like this. So speaking from experience for Maria and I, we both have pretty good understanding of it because we've both recently dealt with dealing with people's estates. And to say that it's a ball ache would be an understatement. Have I understood that right, Maria? Very huge understatement. I mean, basically, if you don't have a will, unless you've got very minimal property... It is a fucking nightmare. Preach. Sure. Coming onto wills at the end, so we can both have a rant at that section. But the first thing that we're going to do is talk about what it means to be a legal person. And it sounds well obvious, but it is covered in the textbook, so I'm going to read it fresh out of the textbook for you. Get ready. A legal person is a body that has a legal existence, yes, that is what it says, and can therefore enter into contracts, sue or be sued in a court of law. It's important to remember that this includes not just an individual acting in a personal or private capacity, but also an individual acting in a formal capacity, such as that of an executor, as well as groups of individuals like trustees, and it also includes bodies like limited companies. So... If you're a legal person, you need to be able, you need to be someone who's able to make your own decisions. So usually you have to be at least 18 and you have to be sound of mind. If you started a business, you get something called a certificate of incorporation. And I realized that I've skipped forward a step. So that's all we need to know about legal people. And now I'm going to talk a little bit about documents that kind of relate to the legal stuff. So if you started a business, you get something called a certificate of incorporation. And this gives you all the information relating to a business. So who owns it, has shares in it, and the records for all that stuff are kept on a central registry at company's house. So if you've ever dealt with a really small company and you want to find out who the business owner is because you've had a really shoddy service, you can go to company's house and search for it and it will give you 
the director's name, sometimes their address, a bunch of other fun information just in case you need it for future reference. And the other document that you get is a memorandum and article of association. So this is all about the nature of the company. The rules about what it can and can't do are set out in that. And that's super important because as as an advisor, so if you're a mortgage advisor, you have to check these documents and make sure if you're dealing with somebody who wants to take out a mortgage as a limited company, that they have the correct authorization to do so. Because there have definitely been instances in the past where somebody's tried to take out a mortgage for under a limited company and actually they have no power to borrow that money. I mean, imagine having the stones to do that. Oh, plenty of people do. Chances. That's what my nan calls them. Chances. (laughs) So if you were to borrow money as a limited liability company, a shareholder or you is not responsible for the debt. So it's actually well attractive to to get a mortgage out that way. Um, the most that you could lose if the company was to go under or become insolvent would be whatever you've invested in shares. So the debt is held against the company, not against you as a person. Instead of a limited liability company, you could also have something called a partnership. So this is an arrangement between people who are carrying on a business together for profit. So. Me and Maria open a business together and we call it averageapodcasts.com <laughs> and both of us are equally responsible for any debts that we take out as a company. So we decide to get four million pound microphones each. So we've got eight million pounds worth of debts and we would have to have a written agreement that sets out in detail the relationship between the partners and what I mean by that is the proportions in which our shares and what we're liable for. So if I say, okay, cool, we're going to take out this debt, but Maria, I want you to be liable for 80% of it. She's probably going to say no, but it's all laid out in the written agreement. And it's really important that they have one in place. You also have to have rules in place for what would happen if I left, retired or died. Now, the next option is a limited liability partnership. So this came into force in 2001. And it's been possible to run a business as a limited liability partnership from then. And this is where partners have a limited personal liability if the business should collapse. So their liability is limited to the amount that they've invested in the partnership together with any personal guarantees that they might have given. So sometimes you would give a personal guarantee to a bank for the business if you're going to take a loan out for the business, but you could still be personally liable. The difference with this one really is the way that you pay tax. So it's still registered with Companies House, but they're taxed the same way as partnerships are as opposed to how companies are. So each partner is taxed on a self-employed basis with their individual share of the profits being treated as their own personal income and subject to income tax as opposed to corporation tax. That's the difference. Are we still asleep, awake? Where are we at? I mean, it's, it is a stodgy topic. We knew this getting into it. So it's just all the different definitions, isn't it? But how intense, or sorry, not intense. Um, how many, is it a case of you need to know the definitions for the exams? For those three, yes, but that's the intense bit over. I thought I would get that boxed off. Cool. So that's really, and for anyone that's listening, that's the bit. Yeah, that's the bit that you just right. The rest of it, I think everyone's going to have a pretty clear understanding of. It's just somebody talking to them about it in terms of mortgages. Yeah. 
So let's talk about the requirements for a binding contract. And I have a fun story that I just read this morning on this one. So a binding contract, we all understand it as like a document that you might sign. Or sometimes you can agree a contract like orally over the phone. If you take out a phone contract, generally you don't do that in store anymore. And they read you out the terms and conditions and you go, yes, okay, cool. Sign me the fuck up. A judge in Canada a couple of weeks ago decided that a farmer had to pay 56,000 euros to a company because he decided that the thumbs up that the farmer sent in a WhatsApp message was him signing the contract. So basically, the farmer had agreed to buy so much insert farmer-related product here. Um, and they were talking over WhatsApp with the supplier. The supplier sent over the contract and the farmer's response was a thumbs up. Now, the farmer's argument was that the thumbs up was just saying cheers for the contract, which I'm not a judge, but that's what I would do. I'd be like, thanks, I'll get to this later. Thumbs up. Um, but the judge decided that he was actually confirming the agreement of the contract and had to fork out the full amount. So, uh, from memory, very hazy university memories, because I did law at uni, there is a, especially under English law, verbal contracts are legally binding. Yeah. But the issue is you have to prove it. So written contract, totally different. But that is, I mean, watch your emoji use, ladies and gents, because... Yeah, the one thing to take away from this week's episode. Be careful with that thumbs up sign. There's a couple of bits of terminology that we need to be aware of, and you'll, you'll understand what all of these are anyway. I'd also like to point out, I think it would be very unlikely for these to come up in the exam. I have not seen them come up in the exam. I can't say for definite that they won't. Anything that I've seen that I know has come up in the mock exam papers that I've been through, I'm going to flag with you guys anyway. The first term is offer and acceptance. And as a mortgage advisor, you're going to hear this all the time. So there has to be an offer made by one party. And that's usually either you making an offer on a property and the seller accepting it or the lender for your mortgage making you a mortgage offer and you accepted it. But either which way, there has to be an offer and there has to be an acceptance and they are two separate processes and they have to be really clearly documented. There's consideration. So this is the subject of the contract and it's basically the promise to pay is valid consideration. That's all that that means. So the subject of the contract must be matched by a consideration, which is usually the payment of money. Cool. There's capacity to contract. So both parties have to have legal power or legal capacity to enter into contracts. So certain parties have only limited powers to enter into contracts, like those under the age of 18. Somebody who might not have mental capacity probably wouldn't be able to enter into a contract. But for financial institutions like insurance companies, uh, their capacity to contract depends on being authorized by the correct regulator. So it's usually the Financial Conduct Authority or the Prudential Regulation Authority. You've got the contract terms, which is exactly as it sounds. It's the terms and conditions of the contract that nobody ever reads, but everyone really should. Um, there's intention to create a legal relationship. And I've included this one because I thought it was pretty funny. Basically, you can't agree to a contract if it's going to be made for illegal or immoral purposes. Ooh. So if you're going to agree, I have to be careful with what I say with this. If you're going to agree to <laughs> traffic 
children. I don't know why that's the first thing that came to mind. But if you're going to agree to that, you don't have to sign a contract to say you're going to agree to it because you're already breaking the law. Don't do it. So you can't, basically, you can't have a legally binding contract for an illegal activity. So if you agree that you're a smuggler and you and your partner are smuggling whiskey. That would have been such a better option. of humans. Um, and your partner absconds with the entire smuggled cargo, you can't then take them to a small claims court and be like, broke our contract, took all of the stolen whiskey. Exactly. So if you're going to enter into some sort of illegal contract, you've got no standing in court. They will just say, do not pass go, do not collect £200, go straight to jail. Uh, misrepresentation, duress, or undue influence. So this just refers to somebody who has been forced into a contract for a particular reason. If any of these factors are involved, then the contract is not binding. So if somebody is forced to take out a mortgage and they can go to court and go, look, I can show you that I was physically forced to take out this mortgage against my will, it, it basically renders the contract invalid. And that's it for terms. I think a lot of them were pretty straightforward. One of them was a little bit funny. We need to cover insurance contracts for a little bit. And it's just because there was this wild thing with critical illness cover for a while where people were taking out critical illness cover. And when they went through the process of taking out critical illness cover, I don't know if you've ever done this, but what they do is they ask you questions about your health. So they'll go, have you ever had any of these insert 20 really serious conditions here? Have your parents or grandparents ever had any of these really serious hereditary conditions. Yeah. Have you seen a doctor in the last year for anything serious? Like they try and cover all of the bases without going through a complete medical history. This never used to be the case. So before the year 2000, um, they could ask really limited questions or really specific questions. So they could literally ask a question when they were figuring out whether they wanted to give you critical illness cover that said, have you ever been to the doctor? And if you answered yes, you had to tell them why. So there was this ridiculous expectation that somebody would just be able to reel off every time that they'd been to the doctor for the last 32 years and exactly what it was for. And that was totally fine. But because they would have said, well, yes, you know, for headaches and then I broke my foot and they didn't declare anything else. Insurance companies, if somebody was diagnosed with cancer of the foot, the foot, um, they were saying, well, you didn't tell us about the time you broke your leg. You fought three years ago. The the things are two the two things are clearly not related, but insurance companies were rejecting claims based on that kind of ridiculous information. So now if you ever take out any kind of insurance like that, there is a really stringent process. They ask you lots of questions and they have to say, look, answer the questions as best you can. They will always ask for a copy of your medical records. But what happened with those claims is the financial ombudsman basically um, voted in favor of the policyholders and the insurance companies had to found out because their rejections were unreasonable. Yeah. So this led to the Consumer Insurance Act came into force in 2013. So we were originally made aware of it in the year 2000 and then the new act came into force as of 2013. You do not need to remember those dates for the purposes of your exam. The last thing on that one, in the case of deliberate or reckless misrepresentation, the insurer can reject the claim completely. So if you've blatantly lied or if you have said, do you do any extreme sports? And you've gone, no, nothing. And then you have to claim because you've broken both your legs. Skydiving. Oh, yeah, there we go. Skydiving. They're not going to pay out because you lied. 
um, remedies for a breach of contract. So a breach of contract is something that happens when one of the two agreeing parties fails to perform its side of the contract. So Maria and I enter into a contract that she's going to dog sit for me every Wednesday till the end of time. And we sign the contract. And then Maria decides that actually it's not going to work for her anymore. There are a couple of things that I can do to remedy it I guess I don't think that's the right word in this instance but it's the one that I'm going to use so the most common one that you will definitely all have heard of is damages so you can claim for damages the injured party which is the legal term seeks to obtain financial compensation for their loss and the idea is is that it would try and put them in as better position financially as insofar as it's possible to do so with money Best example that I can think of of this, and it's a very heavily covered in the media example. Do you, do you, Maria, do you know about the Wagatha Christie thing? No, I don't think I do. Oh, uh, this is because um, you don't get some newspaper pop-ups on your laptop. That's why. So I don't know the ins and outs, but I'm going to give you the Spark Notes version. Colleen Rooney, as in his <sighs> wife, and Rebecca Vardy, who I believe yes. is another footballer's wife. I do know this. Colleen sued Rebecca for damages because Rebecca sold pictures from her private Instagram account to the papers. That is as best as I could bother to read or understand. And it was a huge, massive deal. I believe that Colleen Rooney won and there's going to be a Netflix series on it or something. But that is suing for damages. That is basically saying, you know, I've been financially detrimented by this because for whatever reason, she could have sold them herself and she could have made a bunch of money. But... Rebecca Vardy did it herself, so it went to court and the judge voted in favour of Colleen. Query, is that contract? Oh, as in, did they have a legal contract? No, they had no legal contract, but that was just the best example that I could give of suing for damages. If you have a better one, then please insert example here. There was. Now, I could... I could have dreamt this because we had a discussion a couple of days ago where I was like, oh, this thing happened. And I, the, we had a whole discussion and you were like, no, dude, that you dreamt that. And we I dreamt a whole scenario. So this could be one of those. But I'm fairly sure a couple of years ago, NCP car parks were involved in quite a big contract law court case. And let me get this right. So... When you park on private property, like in an NCP car park, you are entering into a contract because it is implied that by parking on that property where there is signage, that sign represents a contract. By parking, you have implicitly agreed to the terms and conditions in the contract, which are stated on the sign, which is you will pay for the amount of time you need to park on that property. Now, if, like me, you've ever overstayed your welcome, you get a really nice threaty letter through the post telling you they're going to sue the pants off you. You have so many days to pay the fine. And if you pay it within so many fewer days, it's half price off and whatever it is. Now, these are, let me be clear, this is private property. This isn't like Berry Council have fined you for parking on double yellows because that's legal. That's that's road law. Yeah. So it, this is private contract law. Um, those threatening letters, terrifying. I've paid my fair share of them. Um, 
and they come looking very official and very threatening and you go, oh my God, I'm going to get sued. Um, interestingly, that is contract law. So they have no, no, um, there's no criminal charge attached to this, this, uh, what do you call it? Not crime, because it's not a crime, this breach of contract law. So they basically did this to a guy who happens to be, as I understood it, a QC. So he was a barrister. <laughs> and he basically went, do you know what? I'm not having this because you're a bunch of insert insult here. And he went, cool, we'll go to court then toe to toe let's go to court and nine times out of ten companies bank on you not taking them to court because it's very very expensive but this guy's like oh all the training i'm a barrister i don't need to pay for legal representation i am the representation basically he proved because i think they were trying to charge him like a 185 pound fine now that might be like it was under 200 but it was top end and basically he proved that even if someone paid the maximum amount for that parking space for the, I think it was four hours over the time he'd paid for. His point was, even if someone, even if they'd had a turnover every half hour and each of those people had paid for the hour, they still would only have made something like 50 quid. Yeah. So his argument was the £185 charge or fine they were trying to issue was not a reasonable repayment of the damages they had incurred by him not paying for the four hours. Oh, that's a well good example. So he basically, his argument was, you can, I should repay you. That's the legal right thing to do because I breached the contract, which was I didn't pay for the amount of time I, I, I um, what do you call it? occupied the parking space but putting the screws on and charging me 185 pounds because i didn't pay within 14 days is absolute horseshit and i'm not having it and as a result i'm fairly sure the judge's ruling um became basically uh, a case law example so in law when a precedent is set by a ruling mm-hmm. It is the generally accepted ruling that other judges will follow. So you will research. So we have a similar case. It This case is similar to ours. The judge ruled in this way. So this judge will take that ruling as the precedent. So I think NCP downgraded their fine, their, their maximum fine. And I think it's now it's only like 80, I say only, it's like 85 quid. No way. Yeah. I have a fun NCP story for you that is well relevant but before that I'm gonna to have to take a minute to move my desk because I don't know if you can see the blinding <laughs> sun I'm but I claim <laughs> hang on hold the phone folks okay we're back in action so uh my other half is currently going to court with NCP because they have ticketed him for driving into the Cardiff NCP and paying for two hours however two hours later he drove out of the Edinburgh NCP, according to the NCP cameras. So not only is it a physical impossibility for you to drive from Cardiff to Edinburgh in under seven hours, they think that he managed to get inside the Edinburgh NCP without even turning up on the camera. He drove in at Cardiff, got into his portal, drove out in Edinburgh two hours later. He paid for the two hours anyway. So why are they phoning him? What are they phoning him for? He's uh, because he didn't pay for the Edinburgh one. He only paid for the one that he checked in at. 
basically there's just been a monumental fuck up on the cameras or the registration or the dates or something. And he's rang numerous people at NCP and is like, put it into Google Maps, put Cardiff and Edinburgh in and figure it out. It is not physically possible. And they're like, yeah, cool. So your court date is going to be here and we'll just see you then. I'm going to attend that court case and update everybody when I have a better update. I'm also going to attend because I'm fairly sure you can sit in the gallery. I'm going to bring popcorn. You are welcome for that. Yes. Okay, we massively segued, so let's jump back in to... No, don't apologise. That was a delightful insight into everything NCP and you gave a way better example uh, for damages. So what is the law of agency? An agent is a person who who hacks who acts on behalf of another who is called the principal. So two examples here, you've got mortgage advisors or you've got estate agents. So a mortgage advisor would act on behalf of their client looking for a mortgage. So the customer is the principal and the agent is the mortgage advisor in this instance. Um, With the estate agent example, exactly the same. The estate agent is the agent and the person who is selling a property is the principal. One thing that I have absolutely definitely seen come up in all the mock exam papers, so pay attention, turn up your volume, put your glasses on, whatever your focus thing is. An agent should only act within the authority given to them by their principal, which sounds really obvious, but if the agent does exceed their authority, the principal can, if they choose to, agree after the event to what the agent has done, and this is called ratification. So it's ratification that came up in the mock exam, And this is basically when a mortgage advisor or an estate agent, and they are just examples, it is just related to agent as a whole, goes outside of their authority and takes extra steps. So they agree to a mortgage that the customer hasn't definitely specifically agreed to. The customer can, after the event, agree to it, and that's called ratification. Or the estate agent could accept an offer that they're pretty sure the customer is going to accept anyway, but if the customer does accept after the event, it's ratification. Right. I'm with you. Perfect. And then in relation to property and property ownership, we need to know about joint tenants and tenants in common. So this isn't just in reference to rental properties. This is you are classed as a tenant if you own a property while you've got a mortgage on it. So okay. a joint tenant is where each joint owner owns 100% of the property. There's no division of property. If one of them dies the surviving partner will take over the legal ownership of the property. So Maria and I buy a house together as joint tenants. If she pops it, I would get the property. If I pop it, she would get the property. That's just how it works. Even if I've got a will in place that says I'm leaving all my stuff to the dog, Maria would still get that property because we are joint tenants. The second option is tenants in common. And this is where you own a percentage. So if it's just two people in this example, I would own 50% of the house. Maria would own 50% of the house. If I were to die unexpectedly and I have a will that leaves everything to Fox, she would inherit 50% of that property, even if Maria still lived there. So the best example that I can give to you as situations where this might happen is my mum's house was left to me and my sister, and we have decided to become tenants in common on that property, on the legal deeds. So if anything happens to me, my half of this house will be left to my daughter. If anything happens to my sister, her half of the house will be left to her daughter. We don't automatically just get each other's share. Does that make sense? 
Yes, it does, because my sister and I are about to do exactly the same thing, but we're going the other way because we don't have any dependents. We are, we're it. So if I died, I would want her to have 100% of it. If she died, she'd want me to have 100% of it. So it's two. There we go. So there's an example of joint tenants yeah. and tenants in common. I would go over that again if you're not sure which one's which, because that is very likely to come up in your exam as well. Uh, we need to talk about power of attorney, and I'm very conscious that of our time today, so we're going to fire through these last bits, and I'll crop out what we can't keep. So an attorney is somebody who is given the legal responsibility to act on behalf of somebody else. So the best example that I can give is a person who is currently in really good health and is concerned about how their affairs might run if they get really old and they get dementia. They can put a power of attorney in place to look after their stuff if they no longer have mental capacity to do so. So it used to be enduring power of attorney that's been replaced with lasting power of attorney, which is what's been in effect since the Mental Capacity Act of 2005. It came into effect in 2007. You don't need to remember that for the exam, but there are two basic types of lasting power of attorney. And Maria, I'm probably going to ask for your assistance on this one if you don't mind. So as far as I understand it from the textbook, you have the health and welfare side of things. So this mm -hmm. gives the attorney power to make decisions over things like medical care or potentially moving into residential care. It can only be made once that person can't make the decision for themselves. Have yeah. I got that right? Yeah, that is correct. So I was joint power of attorney for both health and, and finance for my yeah. grandfather with my dad. Um, and he suffered with Alzheimer's. So we got to a point where his decision-making ability was still there, but legally he could not do it by himself. The legal definition of his capacity to make a decision was he basically did not have the ability as far as the law was concerned to make decisions in his best interests. Uh, so he could be very, very easily taken advantage or led astray by someone who didn't have the best intentions, which is why we put power of attorney in place. So we made decisions for him for his well-being. So when we went into hospital, one of us had to be there because he had power of attorney noted down on his medical records. So legally, that's you are responsible for making the decisions for that person's best interest. That's the whole point of it is they can't, you have to. So it's like, imagine being a parent of a toddler. <laughs> you, they're not capable of making a sound decision at any point. So you have to make those decisions for them. It's exactly the same. It's just generally more towards the end of somebody's life in the case of dementia or if somebody is severely mentally uh, injured. That's another one. Someone suffers uh, uh, an accident. Um, or a degenerative disease. Yeah, so we're going to loop round into something that's related to that in just a second. Um, but you've explained it perfectly. You've got two ones. You've got the health and welfare one and the property and finance. You can put both in place um, if you want to. And did you know that seven out of ten people don't put stuff like power of attorney in place, nor do they have a will, which is something that we're going to swing around to in a second. But... If you're asking what happens if there is no power of attorney in place and something happens. So there is an option 
called deputization, which is a fun word, not a fun process. Um, the court of protection can appoint a deputy for someone. So in my example, my mum had a stroke and she was no longer able to make decisions for herself. She didn't have lasting power of attorney, which made everything quite difficult, but nobody ever expects that to happen. And in this instance, we had to apply to the court of protection for deputization, which is basically the exact same thing as lasting power of attorney. It's just applied in a different way. They have to come and have assessments because my mum wasn't able to say that she needed it put in place. People had to come, you know, there had to be a medical professional there. There had to be somebody from the court there to say, yeah, it's quite clear that this person does need a deputy. Yeah. Which brings us on to will. So as I said, seven out of 10 people die what's called intestate. And that means that they die without leaving a valid will. You might wonder why this is important to you. As a mortgage advisor or as a protection advisor, you should be having these conversations. So writing a will is the first step in gaining control over an estate. It's therefore a really important part of financial planning. And it's important that your customers understand the benefits of a will. This might be why you see so many life insurance companies that are like, if you take out a policy with us today, we'll send you a free will kit because it's really important and people just don't think that they need to do it. If you don't have a will, as I said, you die intestate and then there are a bunch of different things that you have to do to be able to manage somebody's estate. It has to involve a solicitor. I mean, most people use a solicitor regardless um, once they die anyway. And I think that actually is going to bring us to the end of today. I don't think we've got time for, yeah, we definitely don't have anything time else. for anything else. Like I said, this is not a comprehensive study guide. If you want one, you can buy them from just a tenner from the website, which is cmap.com. We have this podcast that drops every Wednesday. I've got Instagram, which is at Future in Finance, the YouTube channel, which is the same. TikTok, which is at Future in Finance UK. There's the Sunday study edit, which you can sign up to on the website. And there's also LinkedIn. You can get in touch with me. However, every week you send me messages and you're like, I've just found your podcast and I love it. And honestly, I cry on the inside a little bit every time that happens. So please keep doing it. Please keep liking, rating, subscribing, however you're listening to this or watching this. Um, we can't wait to catch you next week. And that's all from us. Cue outro music. <laughs> <laughs>